Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And of course, as always, I'm Tame Kell. Wow, Wade, uh, we've really got an exciting day today, don't we? We really do. Um, that's right. So today we're recording a series of interview type podcasts on some topics of interest, you know, things that have maybe been in the news. Yeah. I don't know. And to do that, we've asked some experts and for real experts in various areas to come help us out and give us their perspective other than our own on these two topics. And I know that you are very relieved those of you in podcast listen to land not to hear just our two voices <laughs> yeah that's got to be nice for you guys uh so today our first topic is one that everybody's been hearing a lot about in the news lately and that is rico cases rico um isn't it suave yeah rico. No, it's not different different, different topic. rico yeah, yeah it's totally different rico and we have a special guest on that topic. You may have seen him on CNN, PBS NewsHour, The Wall Street Journal, ABC World News Tonight, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, Al Jazeera, and my favorite, Rolling Stone. Yeah, shout out. that Way to go on Rolling Stone. That's pretty awesome. You know, personally, I, though, I like to think that uh, Chris's claim to fame is that he prosecuted a RICO case in my courtroom way back before RICO was cool. Uh, he also prosecuted... The first criminal trial that I ever did, which was one of the funniest arson cases we've ever had. But we, we won't get into that today. But please welcome today's special guest, attorney Chris Timmons of Knowles Gallant Timmons Law Firm right here in Atlanta, GA. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Wow. Standing ovation. I know. That's it's pretty cool. Early. Yeah. The studio audience went wild with that. I mean, Rico became cool about four weeks ago, so I, I, yeah. I understand the audience's excitement. And, and we, nerdy lawyers, we nerdy lawyers never thought that would happen, but it did. It's <laughs> it coming did. to its own now, so it's really cool. So, so I don't know all about your, your career and your background. Sure. Tell folks a little bit about your background. So uh, after I graduated from Vanderbilt University um, Law School, oh, I went to Cincinnati. Course. Yeah, yeah. The, the doors are, as you know it, in SEC country, homecoming. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. from from there, I uh, went to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I practiced with the Taft Law Firm doing securities class action litigation. Uh, from there, my wife became a law professor at Georgia State University College of Law. Yeah, she's really impressive. So, yeah, yeah. Chris is all right, but she's really impressive. Yeah, no, I'm known uh, until four weeks ago, I was Timmons' husband, yeah. uh, which is always fun. <laughs> and so when Kelly got her job at GSU, I thought it'd be good for the marriage if I also moved to Atlanta. It'd be a little hard Helps. long distance. Yeah. Uh, so then we ended. I ended up lateraling to King and Spaulding. Um, from there, I made a bit of a jump um, into misdemeanor prosecution, which is not the usual no, path there. No, that's not the way that goes. No. no. No, 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 no. It was a very different office. Um, not much of a view. But uh, from, I, I ended up uh, doing that for two and a half years. Then I rotated uh, up to Cobb County, Georgia, where I was the first white collar prosecutor. I did it backwards. After that, I moved into a courtroom and was a trial line prosecutor. And the very first judge I was a trial line prosecutor assigned to was Judge Kell. Um, I'm sorry, man. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, because that was the assignment for the brand new judge who just didn't know anything about criminal law. And so like, right. hey, Timmons, would you gently teach him about criminal? Because he knows nothing. This guy is totally ignorant of anything. On so do me a favor. Tell sure. me about Rico at the thousand foot level. Tell me. Sure. Tell me. We all hear that it was designed for organized crime and things like that. Tell us about it and how sort of maybe the Georgia 
statute might be different than the federal statute. Sure. So I believe it was 1972 when the, um, or certainly early 70s, when the federal RICO Act was created. And then in the 1980s, early 1980s, Georgia got their own statute. Um, the Georgia statute is much broader than the uh, federal statute, in, in part because we don't really have the organized crime issue in Georgia that they have elsewhere. We've got gang issues. We've got white collar issues. So if you want to uh, talk about the differences between the two, the biggest uh, difference between the two is that you don't have to have an enterprise for Georgia RICO. You, in fact, you can violate the Georgia RICO Act on your own. That's subsection A of 1614-4A. That's you know, what, what I call generic RICO. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> I mean, this is a logging <laughs> podcast, so I figure I'm safe here. Quoting, exactly. quoting no, you, yeah, yeah, we I mean, love that. Cited it to me in a in a court case. <laughs> Shout out the shoes, go yeah, Steve. Go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I'm on the podcast, I'm pretty sure that I can cite myself the next time before. There you go. Yeah, absolutely, you can. Yeah, and as as I told you early on, next time, please, that you're on Al Jazeera, will you plug the podcast? Because I'm pretty sure there's an audience for you. You guys there, are so. huge in the Middle East. I think we are. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. So so what is an enterprise? Yeah. So it, I mean, and so that's subsection B of the statute, and that's enterprise RICO, and and so it's it can be either a formal organization. I think like a gang or a, a mafia family can be an enterprise, but it also could be an enterprise in fact, um, which is a de facto enterprise, meaning that it's a group of people coming together um, and operating under the same goal. And that's what you have in the Trump indictment that's pending in Fulton County. It's a de facto enterprise, not a, an, an, an enterprise that is a named entity like the Bloods or the Crips. So they don't have to have a meeting. They don't have to have a, have a vote. They don't, they don't, they don't get picked. They don't get, get beat in like some gang members do. What makes it a concert of action? What makes it that we know that they're working toward a common goal? So, I mean, that's that's exactly it. You you have to have a corrupt agreement, but not everybody has to agree with each other. So you can have, you know, kind of a wheel and spoke conspiracy where you've got folks on the outside who may not necessarily know what everybody else is up to. In fact, that's typical. And that's why you have the RICO Act. I mean, originally, if you think about organized crime, you've got, you know, we'll, we'll say Polly Walnuts over on the side running prostitution. We've got Jimmy the Fish. Um, he's over here running gambling. Those two may not have ever met each other, don't know the other one exists, but they all go up through the same mafia. A don, meaning that they're all a part of the same RICO conspiracy. And, and my understanding of it, which is very simplistic because I try to keep things that way, is is it's, it's just a commonality of purpose, essentially. I yeah. mean, there, there's there's something that they have in common. They may all be doing different activities, but there's something that they're all doing that 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 points to a, a common goal or a common end. Yeah. I mean, if you think of a ship, you know, the guy in the front row may not know the guy in the very back row, but they're all pulling on the same oar, moving the ship forward. Okay. Yeah, so, so I know this is again, in the simplistic definitions thing, we're, we're trying to learn this. If Tane is in Cobb County and he decides he wants to rob a bank. Yes. I am in Augusta. I, I mean, decide. I'm retired now, so. You have time to rob I'm, banks. Well, and I'm on a fixed income. So <laughs> right. Yeah. No, supplemental income is great. <laughs> exactly. So. I'm in Augusta. I decide to rob a bank. He and I don't know each other. Right. We're both just robbing banks. Right. But it's not anything where we've ever met. We're talking about it. We're, we've, we, we may not even have ever seen each other, don't know each other exist. Coincidentally, there are crimes being committed at the same moment in time all throughout Georgia. Sure. How do you differentiate between he doesn't know me, I don't know him, we're just both committing individual crimes, and 
a RICO claim. Yeah, no, you, you can't have a RICO claim under that situation because you're not, you're not, it's not the same victim. I mean, even if it's, you know, both Bank of America and there has to be some sort of agreement. So the Beastie Boys song that we talked about before, when I think it was Mike D who walked into the bar and punched the piano player in the face to sure. join in with the armed robbery of the, um, the, the bar in that particular, the saloon, I guess it's where in the old West. Saloon, yeah. At that point, they've joined the same conspiracy, even though they've never talked to each other. Um, but it's the same saloon and it's at the same time. There's a commonality of purpose. But if I rob my bank and Wade robs his bank, and the reason that we both robbed our separate banks in Augusta and Atlanta is because we're both sending money to, you know, our boss, who is, as you said, probably Schuster. Yeah, it's Schuster. Yeah, whatever. Now, Joey Walnuts. Let's Joey say. Walnuts, yeah, sure. yeah. But but we're sending we're sending our money to the same thing to further the purpose of the crime family. Then it potentially becomes RICO because we oh. have a commonality of purpose, which is funding the family or or something along those. Yeah, lines. no. So the statute defines its similarity of you know a number of different things, and in that particular case, you've got similarity of accomplices. I mean, you know, so you're all feeding okay. up into the same dawn that would put you together, but separately you wouldn't be because you're not you're not it's you're on different boats that you're pulling oars on, and the fact that you're both on boats doesn't make it a RICO. Okay, okay. gotcha. So what about venue? So, so one of the things that we've, we've heard a lot about is that things are happening, I don't know, maybe in other states, definitely in other counties and other, in other localities in certain cases that might have widespread public appeal. How do you establish venue in a RICO case under Georgia law? I've even done other countries um, where RICO acts uh, acts in further into the conspiracy are going. I think I had a Belize case. But with regard to that, you just have an act. So it's conspiracy law and Georgia plain old conspiracy law. As long as you've got an act in furtherance of the conspiracy that occurs in the, uh, the, the jurisdiction where the case is being prosecuted. Um, then you have a, a RICO case in that county. So, for example, right now we've got the uh, Cop City indictment that was just handed down. Mm-hmm. Probably should be in DeKalb County by all in, uh, rights because, I mean, most of the activity and, in fact, the, the the location of the training center is in DeKalb County. But that case is pending in Fulton County because you did have several acts in furtherance of the conspiracy there. For example, you know, smashing the windows on the 191 building on Peachtree Street. Yeah. So it could be the smallest piece of the the smallest link of the conspiracy could have happened in um, Bibb County. They could bring a RICO claim against everybody who's really acting in Fulton and Cobb and DeKalb and Clayton. They they could bring it in Bibb if any of the acts occurred in Bibb. Yes. When I was in Cobb, I mean, you know, it was considered a very favorable um, uh, jurisdiction for the prosecution. I would have, you know, state and federal agencies coming to me all the time, you know, telling me, why don't we prosecute this in Cobb? And I'm like, well, nine of the houses they hit were in Fulton County. Only one of them was located in Cobb. I understand we could use the RICO Act, but this this uh, should belong in Fulton County. And I think your jurors at some point will wonder, why am I hearing this case right. that's going on, <laughs> you know, elsewhere? And it, interestingly, I had a case where um, I had a, you know, it was a wide ranging RICO conspiracy with pharmacists all over the state, but the pill mill, the the location of the doctor's offices where the illegal prescriptions were being written was in DeKalb County. So we did it as a RICO in DeKalb. Now, every single person other than one pharmacist out in Douglasville ended up pleading guilty. So we ended up you know, essentially talking mostly about what's going on in Douglasville. But again, in a RICO case, you can talk about everything that happened in the conspiracy, including all of the acts that occurred in DeKalb as well. Yeah. And that's an important point. So so there can be acts and furtherance of the conspiracy um, that get talked about in the indictment and in the and in the, the case at law, you know, the, the trial. Um, 
that aren't necessarily even indicted offenses, correct? I mean, you, yeah. you can you can reach outside the state, like you said, the country, uh, and and bring in those other acts, and it's it's it can still be part of the conspiracy. It's not four hundred four B kind of evidence. Where no, we, it's intrinsic. It's it's part of the 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 continuing conspiracy. Yeah, I made that argument all the time. I mean, it's intrinsic evidence as opposed to extrinsic, where you're trying to bring it in four hundred four B. Do we need the statute again? Yeah, yeah, we probably do. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. We're gonna have to keep Timmons around here just to do a soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and now what we're going to have to do, and I don't know how we do this on a podcast, we're going to have to footnote Judge McBurney's podcast on 404B so that right. people can keep switching back and forth and figure so out. So let me is. ask you this. Overt acts. We, we, we've we've said it today. I think maybe we understand it. I always try to imagine my mom's listening to this. Who sure. doesn't have a lot of a lot of legal knowledge. We will dumb it back. We, well, I, not that your mom. No, I'm not, not insulting your mother. Sorry. Careful. Right. Um, what is an overt act? All right. So an overt act is um, so an action that you take in furtherance of the conspiracy. I know that's almost like circular logic, but it's something like we, we, um, if, if you get to an armed robbery scenario, you've got three people that have conspired to commit an armed robbery. The first thing that you need to have in uh, regard to that is an overt act. And so you can't just like we could all be on a phone call and we agree to. Uh, commit this armed robbery, uh, but nobody does anything in furtherance of it. But the second I walk out the door and go buy a gun with the purpose of trying to rob the bank, the FBI, if they were listening in, could swoop in and arrest all of us for conspiracy at that point because we have one overt act. So it's 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 an intentional action that you take in furtherance. It's beyond words. It's it's action. So there's a lot of blending or overlap between conspiracy law and RICO law. Absolutely. I mean, RICO. So in subsection C. Uh, 14, uh, four, <laughs> 14, or 16, angels 14, four. getting their wings Every time a left and decided, right. an angel gets his wings. Right. So 16, 14, 4C is conspiracy, Rico, but also endeavor. And when you, when you hear endeavor, you can just think of attempt. It's the, it basically is defined the same way, but yeah, you can have a conspiracy and, and any sort of Rico conspiracy is going to rely principally on Georgia, a Georgia Rico, um, act case is going to rely on Georgia conspiracy law. So. It seems like to me, <laughs> from what we said, uh, that it is common for RICO cases to be rather large. I mean, have multiple defendants in them. I mean, obviously, you could bring a RICO case if there was one, you know, one one thing going on in one county and one thing going on in another county. But it seems like the cases I've heard of most recently, the Young Thug case in in Fulton County, uh, the the APS uh, cheating scandal case. Those are cases that that you know, and, and then of course this Trump indictment and and some of the other ones. Those are always cases that seem to involve lots and lots of defendants. I mean, usually, but the very first RICO case that I jury tried was a, a single defendant. So you can do that under um, you know, the, the kind of what I call generic or regular RICO. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I think the thing that they're all or, or the, the, the one common element that you're going to find when you have a RICO case is complexity. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It, it, it's, a, it's a complex indictment. Um, you know, when I uh, when I used to teach prosecutors at um, the various conferences, one of the things I would tell them is, you know, a sign that you've got is like Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck. It's like right. you might have a RICO case. <laughs> um, and one of the, the the telltale signs is your case came in a box and there's not a picture of a dead body anywhere around it. Right. right? So it's not <laughs> yeah. a murder. Exactly. Me, so white collar cases, I mean, they kind of fall into two different lines. You've got white collar RICO and you've got gang RICO. Um, the Trump one's kind of unique in that it's, it's a little bit of both. Really? I mean, even though there's not a gang operating there, but your YSL case, the Young Thug case that's pending in Fulton County, that's a fairly traditional 
uh, you know, a gang case uh, when Kwame Brown, who was the uh, mayor of, or not Kwame Brown, Kilpatrick, Kwame Kilpatrick. Kwame Brown is a basketball player. Yes. Kwame Kil- I was Kil- wondering what he did, but I, I yeah. right. Yeah. No, no, no. I think um, probably beat up on a bunch of other basketball teams, although that was figuratively as opposed to literally. So right. he cannot be charged. <laughs> he can't be charged because re- it's not a crime under but, the statute. Yeah. But Kilpatrick was a, a traditional white collar case that was going on where you've got bribery and, and extortion and things along those lines. So that was a federal case, obviously. And then probably one of the more famous ones would be the admissions scandal that happened with Lori Loughlin of Full House. Right. That was a classic white collar Rico on the federal level. Yeah. And the, the public school cheating yep. case, you know, white collar. Was, yeah, was, was a classic white collar case. I mean, you got a bunch of people whose conspiracy is cheating, you know, allowing students to cheat on tests essentially or, or, or changing test scores. So, yeah. So let's talk about logistics of that because there has been talk of, of trying in excess of 10 defendants all at once. I do not know how many people are in the young thug case, but a bunch, there's a bunch, <laughs> nine or 10. Yeah. yeah. And they haven't put a juror in the box in six months, but they've been questioning jurors all throughout. How, as a, as a prosecutor that's sort of leading this case, how do you plan logistically to try something that large? So it's going to be the same trial, regardless of how many people are sitting at the defendant's table. I mean, a I lot guess more cross-examination, a lot more cross-examination. So for time. So the first thing you do is you walk into the judge's office and tell them, hey, I've got a RICO case. <laughs> and then after that, you get you get your, you know, you're cussing out by the judge. Dun, not, dun, not dun, literally. Dun. Yeah. They, yeah. Y- y'all love RICO cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're the fun. I had yeah. I had one that had 22 defendants. So, yeah. yeah, we didn't actually go to trial on it. Everybody eventually played out. But yeah, 20. Do they defendants. usually go together? Yeah, usually. I mean, I, it's very rare for severance um, because, I mean, you guys know you're you're uh, um, you're judges. And so how would you you're already going to tie up your courtroom for one year. And it's not like the rest of your docket goes away. So you've got people in jail who are waiting for trial. You've got people who are waiting to get divorced and they really don't understand that the former president of the United States needs to be in trial for two years when you break it down into two different trials. And so I think that's you know it's probably dawning on Judge McAfee right now that I, I've got two choices here. I can do two trials which means two years, or I can try everybody all at once, but then I'm going to risk the whole ineffective assistance of counsel. We, we've talked severance in a different episode, and if y'all are interested in that whole concept, you check it out. But I'm thinking logistically, where do you try 20 defendants in a room? What room you is big James enough? You've the James Brown Arena. I've done in, the James Brown Arena. We did yeah, that nice. during COVID. Maybe maybe State Farm is available. State Farm I, would be phenomenal. That would be and great. And if Taylor Swift plays that court. Night, actually, she's Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mercedes-Benz might be too big. Right. Yeah. You know, for, I mean, I can You can do see. jury selection all at once if you, you know. Yeah, put them on the big board. Put them, yeah, put them up on the, on the screen. The, that would be the, amazing. Like the, like the kiss cam where they like yeah, put the juror's picture. Y'all want this one? Okay, how about this Anyway. I have my theory on how to get out of jury duty, but that's a long story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's we, that's so different, different I, well, we've all watched uh, the jury duty TV program. Sure. I know how to do so it. So right. how, how, how seriously, where are you going to try that case? I don't know, because I would imagine that the ceremonial courtroom is taken up by YSL. But uh, even if it even if it was available, could you put 20 defendants in the courtroom? And I think, lawyers. And yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I think you'd have to move out the pews. Press, I think you would I think yeah. you would have to have. I mean, well, they, APS, I think, was around 12. I think that's really what you're going to end up with here. There's going to be some folks that are going to cut deals pretty quickly. Although, I mean, they, you know, they're uh, usually you have some more time after your RICO case before you get to trial, which allows your various defendants to. You didn't get a lot of speedy trial demands in your RICO cases? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Let's that try all 22 of us together. You know? And yeah. do it within four months. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've, I assume the state's ready on this one, but yeah, defense is going to have to catch up. 
Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. We were talking a little bit about this a minute ago about about motions for, to sever and that sort of thing, and we're already seeing some of this in the in the Trump case. But what kinds of motions do those cases generally, you know, generate? I mean, I, I know there are some common things that just come up in all of those yeah, not trials. your normal Jackson Deno, but what are there unique motions for Rico? Sure, for sure. I mean, so there's usually a motion to strike surplusage because you've got a Rico indictment that has multiple pages on it. Now there hasn't there's a lot of law in Georgia on striking surplusage, so I think we're going to look to the federal law. And, it, and there's usually two standards. One, it has to be irrelevant. And two, it has to be prejudicial in some way. And usually it's only prejudicial because it's relevant. I mean, we all know that it's, it, it is prejudicial because it is, what is so it? All, uh, all relevant evidence is prejudicial. Some uh, some prejudicial re- evidence is relevant. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you're drafting that complaint, I mean, they look much more like books than they do standard indictments. Yeah. What's the thought process as a prosecutor when you approach drafting that indictment? So it's interesting you said complaint because that's what I do now, a civil RICO, and it's the same thing. But you, I mean, you, you want to give a narrative to the, the jury. Probably the last piece of the indictment you write is the, the first piece that is read, which is kind of that introduction section, the executive summary, if you will. And that really sums up the case. So when you're looking at it, and when I was when I was going on ABC the, the night that the indictment dropped, what I told all of them was read the five pages. Don't worry about everything else. <laughs> read the intro. Just read the intro and you'll have enough to get through the, the I mean, because we got that thing about five minutes before we went on the air. It was crazy. But but yeah, that's the section that you write first. And that's really your opening statement to the jury so that they get a great set. You know, like you try a murder case, it's weird. You've got the count one, you know, malice murder. And then right. it's like, did you don't malice tell the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kill them with a knife. I mean, we have no idea what happened in that particular case. And so then, why do you have to tell the story? That's a great example because why do you have to tell the story in a RICO indictment where you don't in a murder indictment? You don't. And I, I believe the laws you could in a murder indictment if you, if you want to. It's just sort of it's more tradition than anything else that you include all that language. And once it's in, unless it fits the, I mean, we, we don't have a Georgia standard yet, but if we follow the federal, as long as it's not prejudicial and, I mean, it has to be both to get it kicked. It, both, it has to be both irrelevant and also it has to be prejudicial. So you can now, is that a motion to quash? Like you can quash the whole indictment if, the, if that's surplusage and all that in there? It's a motion to strike the surplusage. You're not going to get rid of the entire thing. I mean, that, that's the remedy anyway. The, the remedy is not quash the entire indictment. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, Don Samuel filed a motion uh, on behalf of his client, which was uh, adopted by the Trump. Um, and I think some general demurs. I think there were some. I mean, they were alleging that the conspiracy wasn't alleged properly. I don't think that's going anywhere. And then the other one is um, they, they filed general demurs on some of the, the lesser counts down below. But again, that's not typical in a RICO. I I would get all the time um, when I would do a subsection A RICO, the regular RICO. I'd get 
you know, motions to general demurs on the basis that I didn't allege an enterprise. And I'm just like, so that's federal Rico. Right. That's, and that's adorable. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. This <laughs> right. person might not be uh, yeah. well versed so in Georgia a, Rico. Yeah, that was the first thing I knew was that, okay, you don't know anything about Georgia Rico. So I'm feeling pretty good about my case. <laughs> well, 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 we talked about how important this this introductory section is, which makes perfect sense to me because you've got a complex uh, set of facts that you're you going to have to lay out. What are the other things you do as a prosecutor to structure a RICO complaint? I mean, is there kind of some magic formula that you use to try to tie it all together so that a judge and a prosecutor and a, and a juror can all understand this complaint? I mean, so in terms of a wide sweeping conspiracy, and I had one where we had 45 potential defendants, it was a cocaine conspiracy RICO indictment that I was working on that came out of a wire. And the first thing you do is figure out, okay, who fits neatly within the conspiracy? Because sure. we had some folks that we weren't sure if they were distributing or if they were buying for personal use. Personal use, not RICO. Distributing, RICO. And so we just cut them out. I mean, why, why get into an argument in front of a jury as to whether they fit within the RICO scheme or not. So that's a big one. So you're looking at, all right, who are our pool of defendants that we really want to go after? And then the next thing you want to do is when you're structuring your indictment, you try to organize your case um, and you're testing each individual act of racketeering activity, which is a crime, um, as opposed to an act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Those are two different things. Although an ra- act of racketeering activity can also be an act in furtherance of the conspiracy. But you're, you're, you're testing all of your acts to make sure that, A, they fit within the indictment properly, and B, can we prove it? Um, like in this opioid RICO case that we had, um, we had probably 5,000 patients that we could have chosen from. What we were looking for there were the most egregious examples where they were giving potentially lethal doses of opioids to these folks. So, you know, how did you know that they were selling it? They showed up the next month. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They actually, yeah, they actually All right. Die. So you and, said something right there that, that maybe I'm interested in knowing about, hopefully everybody else is, um, you, you talked about drug use is not RICO, drug distribution is. What are you talking about? I mean, it could be. You know, is it I think, in the statute? Yeah, the statute, I think, would allow drug use. But it's it's kind of hard to argue that somebody who's buying for their own personal use is the same as somebody who's selling. Right. So letter of the law, spirit of the law. I mean, you know, when you're when you're a prosecutor, I spent a lot of time when I was a prosecutor because I would get calls from all over the state from DA's offices asking me, you know, all right, what, what do we have here? And I would... A frequent discussion was, so you can, but you shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, I had one yeah. where. Yeah, is this a good idea? Because right. how's a jury going to, you know, look at. Yeah. Is it know, overcharged? A lot of my years. Exactly. In, a lot it? of my years in college were, you can, but it's not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, so like college, yeah. go, same thing. <laughs> well, let me let me ask a question. And this is kind of off on a, a little bit different tangent. But I think there are a lot of people out there who are scratching their heads in, in the Trump case, not understanding this. So, so we had a special grand jury yes. that, that was convened that essentially investigated or looked into all these charges that came before the grand jury. And, and, and I mean, I understand that because I've been part of grand jury and you know, understood me. that before. With, yes, with you <laughs> as my prosecutor. But, but explain for folks sort of the interaction or really lack of interaction between what the special grand jury recommends and, and what happens at the actual grand jury proceeding. Because, you know, here I think it's confusing that for example, there were some people that they recommended charges be brought against by the special grand jury who didn't end up getting charged, at least yet, uh, in in this uh, 
indictment that's come down. So that's how you and I met, Judge Coe, was yeah. when you were in private practice, you were representing the school district in Cobb County. And that I was, was I was running a special purpose grand jury in Cobb to investigate a laptop program. Um, so the difference between them is a special purpose grand jury has to be voted on by the Superior Court judges. What happens is the DA goes to the chief judge of the Superior Court, says, hey, I'd like to run a special purpose grand jury. And the Superior Court judges appoint them sometimes to their regret. Anyhow, <laughs> um, so your, your typical- Because it does become an animal all oh, its own. This know, one was 18 months. Right. It was crazy. But right. but uh, so normal term of court in the Atlanta area, the bigger counties is going to be two months. And it's difficult to do a massive sweeping investigation in two months. Um, so you, what you would do is convene a special purpose grand jury that could run anywhere. I think this one was like eight months. You've got, I'm, like I said, the one I ran was 18 months. It just kind of depends on, on what's going on and how big your investigation is, how many witnesses you have. So you get through all of that. Usually there's a court reporter there taking down testimony. And then once you get through with that, what the special purpose grand jurors do is they've, uh, they, they issue a report. When I was running the Cobb County special purpose grand jury, we thought they had the power to indict. I still think they do, but the Court of Appeals disagrees with me and their Court of Appeals justices and I'm just a rando who knows Rico. Um, so, uh, but but again, so special purpose grand jury issues a report and from there that it's issued mainly to the, the DA's office who then takes the recommendations. It's not uncommon for the special purpose grand jury to vote to indict more people than you're ultimately going to indict. And so there are a few things that are going on there that could be, and again, we're total in speculation land, right? Uh, but but it could be folks have cut cut deals. Um, you know, I would I would go to them when I'm the DA's office and said, "Hey, the special purpose grand jury recommended that you be indicted. I'm looking at this indictment. I think you should be indicted. How about immunity in exchange for testimony?" And there there's such a thing as an unindicted co-conspirator, where perhaps for whatever reason the prosecutor just decides I don't want, want or need that person in my case. It complicates things or it makes it more difficult to make them one of the defendants, and, and you don't have to indict them as a prosecutor, correct? That's exactly right. You know, if you don't like 19 cross-examinations, how would you like 38? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about, now we've talked about how to, how you structure a complaint in a RICO case. What about the trial? I mean, how, you know, how do you logistically as a prosecutor uh, and, and as a judge, because uh, we have a lot of judges out there who listen to us, how do you, how do you structure something that large? So, we talked about where do you have it? I mean, you know, right. how do you do it? How do you, how do you start the case and get it, you know, to trial when it's that large and, and cumbersome. I mean, so the, the trial itself and um, uh, the last RICO case I did as a prosecutor, last RICO trial I did with, as a prosecutor, um, you know, I had I had novice RICO prosecutors with me. And all I told them was this. Don't worry about the RICO. I'll handle that in the first closing argument and explain it to the jury. But what I need you to do is read the indictment, prove the indictment. Your indictment is the roadmap to the case. And that's why I think to some degree it, it would be easier to push this case uh, if you're you know, Judge McAfee um, because you've got, you know, defense attorneys pretty much know what they're going to face. I mean, there may be some some other things that are out there, but um, my, my deal when I tried these things was we have narrowed this case down to what we need to prove prove that and we'll be fine. And so that's, it really is structured around the indictment. Now, you know, in terms of witness order, things like that, you might, you might go a little outside of that. Certainly you don't want two witnesses that are going to contradict each other, but it's, it's like trying any other case, believe it or not. It's just, you've got, you know, you're, you're going to prove more, but you're going to prove it the same way. So in a murder case where you might have, you know, 20 witnesses because you've got a bunch of people coming to the scene and a RICO case, you might have 50, 60, 70. Um, but, but you got to keep track of that. And the other thing that you've got to do as you're marching along is somebody has got to be looking at that indictment and checking off 
the box on what overt acts have we proven in, in favor of our RICO conspiracy, or if we're talking about an A violation, have we got at least two predicate acts? Um, sometimes you strip the indictment down to the, only the stuff. I mean, even after it's indicted, you can pull out sections and not have to go forward on those those predicates. Yeah, and I mean, you've still got to prove the elements of the yes. you know criminal acts, and you, you've got to do all of those things. So, I guess from that standpoint, it is it is a a regular criminal prosecution. It's just there are a lot more people involved, a lot more moving parts. You know, 20 cross-examinations as opposed to one, that sort of thing. And the law's a little trickier, but yeah, that's fine, yeah, of course. Potential penalty. Yeah. Mandatory prison time? No. I, I know um, that Miss um, Willis said, or, or Madam DA Willis said that. I, I don't think that's the case, or, or I've violated a lot of statutes because <laughs> in my case where I had the 19, um, I was, you know, had, had a lot of probation pleas or suspended. Um, having done the research on that, my understanding is you can probate or suspend any portion of it. It doesn't read that they, any sort of, it's not like armed robbery where you've got a mandatory time. Right. The penalty is five to 20, but it's not five mandatory or anything like that. It's just a but it grids reg- out. regular, yeah. I mean, it grids out at a nine, which, you know, is only is underneath the uh, the uh, life sentences. So, you know, if somebody goes, you get convicted of RICO and you're going to prison, you're going for at least 48 months. So just to be clear, what he's talking about, about, about the grid system in the Department of Corrections or the Board of Pardons and Paroles, they have a system where all the crimes in Georgia are on a grid. And they basically say the more serious crimes are a nine or a 10, the less serious crimes are a one. And then based upon your criminal history and other factors, they sort of do a math problem and then they decide when you're eligible for parole. So RICO in the one is not serious, 10 is very serious structure. It's a nine. It's it's up there with attempted murder. It's up there with attempted child molestation. I mean, it is it is a big deal. Um, I sent one guy to prison. Actually, well, Judge Grubb sent the guy to prison, but I prosecuted him. Um, he got, I think, 20 to serve, and he did 10. And I kind of felt bad because I, I sent him in when he was 64. When he got to 72 or 73, he could stand in his first um, mugshot. He was sitting. He could not stand by the time we got to the end. I felt like that was a little cruel at that point, but he did take $2.7 million from an old lady who was going to use it to fund a facility for children with down syndrome. So the guy's kind of a scumbag. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel that sorry nah. uh, for that. Well, and, and there's some, there's some pretty significant fines with Rico and that sort of there thing are. as well. Correct. And yeah. Trouble, whatever they got. Yeah. yeah. So is there anything unique to any of the cases that are currently pending that you think are, are unprecedented maybe in Rico world? Is there anything really super unique about them? Anything that you think that you are, as a Rico uh, aficionado, that 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 you are looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think the the words piece, both in um, the Young Thug case where you're talking about lyrics, and then um, in the Trump case, we're talking about text messages and calls. Um, you know, the, so there are, I am not at all a first amendment expert, don't even pretend to be, but I think that at least if we haven't already in those cases, we're probably going to see some first amendment motions, um, trying to, to kick those, um, predicate acts or acts in furtherance of the conspiracy out. Um, so I, I, those are unique. That's probably the biggest thing. And, that, and that's, that's what I talked to the Rolling Stone about was they go. were asking me about the, what the similarities were between the two. And it really is both are using words. I typically, I mean, I guess you use that when you're talking about phone calls in a drug case, um, where you know you're, you're uh, uh, you know, where you're using calls to, to further a, a drug conspiracy, but that's unusual. I mean, rap lyrics in the YSL case and texts and phone calls—that that's what jumps out at me in those two. As a super fan of Rico, 
<laughs> super fan of Rando. <laughs> Rando. Rando. Rico Rando. Who knows, who knows Rico? I was like, wow, what a great, what a great moniker. That is our new phrase. That would be a pays. really long yeah, Rando car knows tag, Rico. but it yeah. was pretty cool. Rando Rico. Um, so folks, that's, that's, uh, that's it for today's episode. We want to thank Chris Timmons for coming in. Um, we may be reconvening as this gets stranger and stranger. Um, we want to thank him as Chris Timmons of, of Knowles, Gallant, Timmons Law Firm in Atlanta. And it's been great having you and, and obviously a lot, very informational because I don't, I have not tried a Rico. You have tried one. I tried one. I've had three or four, I think, uh, in front of me, some gang cases and things like that that worked themselves out. As they do. Yes. They do. <laughs> I just wish you could tell me more about, if we just had more time, you could tell me about Tane as a judge. He's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Love Judge Scott. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Reti- he's retired. It, it's okay now. Yeah. <laughs> he's a mediator, though. We That's true. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, just give my a, clients more money. That, there you go. Yeah. There, <laughs> right. Well, there's, there's sort of a, a, what is it, a, a cone of silence that we have to stay under in sure. this case. But hey, folks, I, we're out of time today, but I did want to remind everybody, please be sure and reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can read our notes and outlines at our website at goodjudgepod.com. And uh, don't forget to uh, like us and uh, follow us on your favorite uh, podcast platform. And do you want to shout out your firm and, and sure. what y'all do? Yeah, no, no. So Knowles Gallant Timmons, um, we do both litigation. I'm a parachute trial lawyer as well as doing RICO. And then um, we do- You a only fair... trial p- cases in a parachute? I do. I do. No, it's what happens is I get the case with six weeks left to go and then we're oh, on nice. trial. And, and so as far as I'm concerned, I don't feel bad for any of the defendants. In this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have referred to these RICO cases as the Defense Lawyers Retirement Fund Act. I mean, they're- It you could know, be a million dollars, yeah. Lots of people involved. Anyway, how do they contact your firm? Is there a website? Sure. So yeah, we do. It's uh, KnowlesGallant.com. Um, it'll be KGT Legal at some point, but we're still working on that. We um, we're on Twitter. We're on all kinds of. We have a publicist now because all this TV stuff. I'm yeah, doing, which is cool. Nice. Shout Shout out to you. I had Thank to. You. I had to go through an army of agents and other right. people to no, get no. to Chris. I have an entourage. They're waiting outside. Yeah, he doesn't take my phone calls anymore. <laughs> it's really terrible. So, so wait, am I doing the rock trivia today? Or You're you doing, doing the rock trivia, trivia. folks. You know that this has become a favorite of some of our <laughs> listeners. That the conclusion. <laughs> of our episodes we're doing music trivia and today is a little bit of rock and roll talk to them Tang. sure folks uh today i picked one of my favorites uh in rock and roll a rock and roll icon mr stevie ray vaughn and i'm just gonna tell you some really cool and interesting facts about stevie ray uh stevie's earliest musical inspiration was his older brother jimmy ray uh, jimmy jimmy ray vaughn jimmy vaughn uh stevie began playing at the young age of seven on a toy guitar that was bought for him from sears Uh, He was instantly captured uh, by the guitar and music when he heard his brother playing. Jimmy Vaughn, uh, who started the the very famous group, the Fabulous Thunderbirds, is also an accomplished blues guitarist in his own right and continues to perform today. Stevie dropped out of high school, as all the really good musicians do, in 1972 to concentrate on his music career. And after playing in a lot of bands that just couldn't get off the ground, Stevie set his sights on uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, That city had a booming music scene that offered him a lot of opportunities to play blues, which is what he was going to play at that time. And also his brother Jimmy had already established himself as a blues guitarist there. And so 
Then finally, one day, the magic happened and John Hammond, who was a producer and talent scout, uh, he was really considered one of the most influential figures in 20th century popular music, um, discovered him. Uh, and even though Hammond was retired at the time, uh, he, he saw Stevie's immense talent and he brought him to Columbia Records. So here this young guy has been playing in clubs and all of a sudden John Hammond walks in, you know, the dream, uh, and brings him to Columbia. And um, in fact, Hammond liked him so much that he served as the f producer on Stevie Ray Vaughan's debut album, which is, of course, Texas Flood, one of the great uh, albums of all time. Uh, Texas Flood, incidentally, was recorded in three days uh, in Jackson Brown's home studio, uh, which is just cool. A crossover. I know, right? And then this is another cool thing that happened. Uh, David Bowie saw Stevie Ray Vaughan and his band Double Trouble perform at the Montreux Music Festival in 1982. And he invited Stevie to record with him. So imagine that, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and David Bowie. As a result, Stevie was featured as the lead guitarist on Bowie's 1983 album, Wade, Let's dance. There you go, nice. man. So anyway, that album uh, essentially served as the world's introduction to Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, the last thing I thought was fascinating about Stevie Ray uh, is he never learned to read music. In fact, when he would write a song, uh, he usually didn't even know what key he had written it in. Somebody would, else would have to, uh, to tell him. So there's hope for me yet, Wade. You're going to hear more. <laughs> I already can't read music. You're going to hear more as we record today about people who couldn't read music. That's awesome. All right, folks. Thank you so much. We'll see you again on uh, the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be have a little more room to have fun but number two if we failed you we'll do our best to do it better next time we know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us we're kind of amazed to be totally honest this podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of doug ashworth the former executive director of icje thanks and appreciation to mr hinnerberger and the entire university of georgia college of law Thanks to Mr. Steven Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to add it out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. 
You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.